This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Blessing to be with you this morning. My name is Israel Wayne. My family and I are visiting you from uh, where, where we hail from, the state of Michigan. Uh, we live in southwest Michigan, and um, I am an author and conference speaker. I'm actually not a, a pastor, but I've been uh, working in Christian publishing the last 30 years, and I speak at uh, a lot of Christian conferences around the United States and even around the world. And we are on a month-long trip um, across the United States. We're actually about halfway through that trip right now and um, came, came down to the conference in Tupelo and then in Phoenix, and we're kind of heading back home. We have some events in Kansas City uh, tomorrow. So uh, I have enjoyed already getting to uh, get a flavor for uh, the church here. You never quite know what you're walking into until you get to a church, and uh, I am already at ease here. Um, and one of the things that has set me at ease is us introducing and beginning this service talking about who God is. Uh, one of the things that I've learned over the past 30 years that I've worked in Christian publishing is that there is a rather predictable set of criteria for evaluating from a marketing angle what types of books sell within the Christian book market. And uh, really the formula is, is fairly simple. Um, you just create a book that's something along the lines of uh, 40 days to a better you. Uh, and so self-help and self-empowerment books are uh, always popular. Um, anything that will help you to learn how to be healthier, happier, uh, more successful, make more money, um, in 30 to 40 days, those types of books tend to sell very well. However, the most important thing that we can talk about is not how you can become a better you, uh, although many churches have picked up on this information from, I think, Christian radio and Christian publishing and have recognized the, the marketing and demographic trends and have decided that that's their marketing approach. Uh, this is how we bring people into the church, and this is how we uh, attract people is through teaching them self-help techniques. Um, the problem with the self-help gospel is it's not the gospel. And so the most important thing that we can ever talk about, that we can ever study, that we can ever learn, that we can ever be uh, consumed with and obsessed with is the doctrine of God. And so that's what I want to talk with you about today. I want to look at one of the attributes of God, um, just quickly to kind of lay some groundwork um, for where I'm going with this. And we're going to be looking at, uh, uh, the, the title of this message is called, Is My Hand Too Short? It's a question that God asked the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 50, verse 2. Our text is going to be in 2 Kings 18, so if you brought your Bible along and you want to uh, read along, we're going to actually dive into some scripture passages. We'll read those in 2 Kings 18 uh, and, and 19. We're going to look at some passages there. But first of all, I just want to mention um, that within theology proper, uh, there is a, t a term that is used to describe God's nature, character, and attributes. And in Latin, uh, the term is called communicatio idiomatum, 
And what it refers to is the communicable attributes of God. There are two different aspects of God's nature and character. There are aspects of his nature which can be communicated to us as humans, and there are attributes that cannot. So the communicable attributes of God we find throughout the scripture in many different places, but one of the places where they primarily show up is in Galatians chapter 5 when we read about the fruit of the Spirit. And these are attributes of God, of who he is, of what he's like, that God communicates to us as humans in a very limited capacity. So when we read about God's love, about his goodness, we read about joy, these aspects and attributes of who he is, self-control, so on, he communicates these attributes to us in a limited form. And so when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life, we have this transformation where we no longer are dominated by the flesh. We're no longer controlled by what our flesh wants. We begin to see old things passing away, all things become new, and we begin to live out and uh, to express in our daily lives these attributes of God that are so unlike us, that are not what we're like, uh, but that are what the Holy Spirit is like. And so as He lives through us, we begin to exhibit and have those same character traits or those same attributes within our own life. But those communicable attributes of God, uh, which we can... Um, all partake in when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit are different from another set of God's attributes and character traits that are the non-communicable attributes of God. And the non-communicable attributes of God are the attributes that make God God and everyone else besides God not God. And God does not transfer these attributes to anyone besides himself. There's a fairly small list of these attributes. One is God's infinity. God is infinite in what he does. Another is God's eternality. God has no beginning. God has no end. Only God is truly eternal. Another is God's immutability. That means God does not change. Everything else in the universe is in a state of flux. It's constantly changing. God does not change. His immutability. Then we have the doctrines of his omniscience. God knowing all things. His omnipresence being everywhere at once. You and I can't do that. We can't know all things. We can't be everywhere. And of course his omnipotence, his all-powerful attribute. And it is this attribute of God, his omnipotence, that I want us to look at today. And we're going to see this as exhibited through a scenario with Hezekiah, the king of Judah. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a setup to this, and then we're going to read the text itself. So this is about 700 BC. Hezekiah is the king of Judah. He is a godly king. He is a king who trusts in the Lord, and yet he's found himself in a very difficult situation, a situation that we would not want to be in ourselves. He is being surrounded by the wicked Assyrian king, Sennacherib, who is basically set on complete 
and utter destruction and annihilation of Hezekiah and God's people. He has circled Jerusalem. There's 185,000 troops there. I don't know if you've ever looked out your window in the morning and seen 185,000 troops standing outside. I have not. I can imagine, however, that there would be some sort of a really deep, sickening feeling in your stomach, um, especially if you had to try to find a way to, as the king, to deliver your people and rescue your people. And you know you have no capacity, you have no resources, you have no ability whatsoever to be able to intervene here. And I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself in saying that there are times in my life where I believe very fully that I trust God. I believe very fully that uh, my faith and confidence is in the Lord. And yet, to some extent, I don't think we know how much we trust God until that gets tested. And so God, in His infinite wisdom and love and kindness allows us to be tested at times, to have our faith tested in ways that are beyond our capacity, that are beyond our ability to control. And so, as Hezekiah looks out at this situation, God sends him a message, sends the nation of Israel a message through Isaiah, again from 50 verse 2, and says, Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom or have I no power to deliver? And the question is, with Hezekiah and the situation as it will be in our lives at various points, the question is, who's in charge? Who is in control? And then for us, who do we trust? So I want us to look at chapter 18 of 2 Kings. We're going to start reading in verse 1, and we're just going to get a little bit of background about this guy Hezekiah, see who he is and what we can learn from him and how we can apply it to our own lives. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. Now this verse here, verse uh, 5, I think is really amazing. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Wow, that's quite a commendation. Um, this is not something that Hezekiah is saying about himself. His publicist didn't write this and put it in his bio. This is something that God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has recorded for us to understand who this man is. He trusted in the Lord in a way that nobody else did. Uh, he trusted in Him. There was no, none like Him either before him or after him. It's a pretty fabulous commendation the scripture gives to this man, Hezekiah. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, 
but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Then we have from verses 9 through 12 an explanation of how uh, the northern king of uh, Samaria um, had, because we had the divided kingdom of Israel north and Israel south, uh, Israel north being uh, located in Samaria, Israel south in Jerusalem, Israel north from the time that the kingdoms divided was just pretty purely evil and rebellious against God and just did not obey God whatsoever. And so they experienced a more dramatic decline uh, than, than Judah, who had several uh, good kings who served the Lord. So Shalmaneser, this king of Assyria, goes up to Samaria, besieges it, uh, takes it. And, uh, and then it says in verse 12, the reason why, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but they transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. So because of their disobedience, they experience not the blessing and protection and provision of the Lord, but his discipline, and they experience it at the hands of their enemies. So picking up here, reading in verse 13 of chapter 18, and if you're taking notes, you may want to make a note. There's a parallel passage to this in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 36 and 37. You'll see a similar uh, outline of this story dropped into Isaiah. Sometimes when you read the Bible, it's hard to understand the chronology. So you see a king like Hezekiah, you see a prophet like Isaiah, and sometimes it's hard to know where do these guys all fit in the story, the uh, chronology uh, and layout of the scripture. Well, these guys overlapped. So Isaiah, his ministry overlapped several uh, kings, but one of the kings that uh, was prominent within the life and ministry of Isaiah is Hezekiah. And so you can read again a similar passage in Isaiah 36 and 37. So picking up here in verse 13 of 2 Kings 18. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Sounds kind of ominous. Doesn't really sound like there was much of a fight, much of a battle, like he just came up and took him. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria, Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. I have a little footnote here that gives us a math problem that you can solve later on your own time. It is 75 pounds for one talent. So you think of 75 pounds times 300 for the silver and 75 pounds times 30 for the gold. Quite a bit of money. Now the problem is that Judah doesn't really have a lot of money right now. So where are they going to get the money to pay this tribute to Sennacherib? It says, And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. So he's taking from his own personal wealth. He's also taking from the gold and silver that belongs to the worship of God. 
At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. When you read through the rest of this text, what we see is that Sennacherib gets a little bit distracted with some other battles, but he sends some people to go and create a siege. Basically, they begin threatening uh, Hezekiah and the people of Israel. This guy, Rabshakeh, he's the spokesperson for, for the king, uh, for Sennacherib. And basically, he is, again, just set on their complete and utter destruction. Now, this is not really the main point of the message, and I don't want to get too far afield, but I think there can be a little bit of a life lesson here that you don't negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there, because what they do is they will, they will take your hostage money, and then they'll go ahead and kill everybody anyway. And so that's kind of what's happening here, is that you have, when you have lying, evil people, you don't trust them. And so he takes you know, basically whatever he has left in his own personal reserves, and he even takes the sacred things that belong to the Lord, gives it to them with a motive of appeasement, as though somehow this is going to make things better. But if you've ever studied the history of terrorists, it doesn't work. Uh, basically, they will take that and then just go ahead and try to destroy you anyway. So usually in a scenario like this, the better thing is to uh, seek the Lord first, as opposed to trying to find some sort of fleshly way of resolving the problem. So this Rabshakeh goes and starts taunting the people of Israel. He begins talking about how they've destroyed everybody else, how there is just no way that they're going to be able to uh, defend themselves. He says, look, I'd even give you chariots if you had enough horses to pull them. You know, uh, He's completely making fun of them. And... Uh, and verbally abusing them. Uh, the leaders say, can you, you know, not say this out loud in language that everybody can understand? Just negotiate with us here privately. And, and he says, no, this is for everybody to hear. He's trying to set terror into the hearts of all of the people of Judah um, to give them a, a sense of their complete and total annihilation. Um, down here in verse 32, um, he's saying, don't let Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. He's, he's demoralizing them. He's just completely taking away any courage that these people have, that the, that the little pep talk that they're going to get from Hezekiah of, hey, hang in there, God's going to rescue us, God's going to save us. He's saying, there's not a chance of that. In fact, look at all these other nations. They have gods that they prayed to. They have gods that they worship. They have gods they sacrificed to. Their gods did not protect them. Your God's not going to protect you you're going to be destroyed. And so they were, the people were commanded not to answer, so they were silent. And they come to Hezekiah. So ver chapter 19, verse 1. This is the response of Hezekiah to this extremely weighty situation, to this scenario where he knows he has no capacity to be able to save himself. He has no capacity to save God's people. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Just pause here and say, that's a really good posture. A posture of humility. Uh, a king is usually decked out in royal robes, wearing a crown, looking rich, looking pompous. 
He doesn't do that. He tears his clothes. He puts dust and ashes on himself, and he, he goes into the house of the Lord with a complete posture of humility. Verse 3, they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day, oh, sorry, let me back up. Um, oh, so verse 2. And he went to Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So what happens here in verse 8, moving forward, is Rabshka goes back. He finds that, um, he, that his king has been si- sidelined, and uh, he again sends this message that God's not going to save you. Don't be deceived. Don't think there's any rescue for you. All the other nations have been leveled. They've all been given to destruction. Who's going to deliver you? No one's going to save you. These other gods didn't save them. God's not going to save you either. So verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. One thing you will learn as you grow in your walk with the Lord is that the way that you prepare yourself for difficulty in your life, and difficulty will come, there will be times of, of testing. There will be times of suffering. There will be times of, of pain. There will be times where you feel overwhelmed, where your circumstance and your situation is such that it's beyond your capacity to help yourself. And the way that you prepare yourself for those moments is not by trying to prepare yourself for those moments, as counterintuitive as that may seem. Because you will have no idea 
what that looks like. There's no way for you to be able to prepare yourself for a cancer diagnosis. There's no way for you to prepare yourself for having lost 90% of your assets in a stock market crash. There's no way to prepare yourself for a business deal going bad and everything you've worked for for 20, 30 years goes up in flames and is lost through no control of your own and it's just gone. There's no way for you to prepare yourself for that tragic car accident where that loved one of yours dies suddenly and instantly. There's just no way for you to be able to brace yourself. You can't take a self-help course that's going to help you to be able to know how to navigate those situations. There's really only one way that you can in some way prepare yourself for a day of calamity such as Hezekiah is facing here. And that is to know God. Not just know about God, but to truly know God, to know who He is, to know His character, to know His attributes, to know what He's like. I know that sounds like the Christian thing to say. I know that sounds somewhat cliche. I'm not being trite in saying it. I think one of the reasons why we have so many people who bail out on Christianity when times are difficult, when things don't go their way, when they experience some sort of suffering or calamity is that our churches are not fully equipping people to understand who God is. And so they are disillusioned by a God they have invented in their own mind. The little God that they invented in their mind, the little, the little Jesus that they serve in their head, the, the Jesus that they made up, uh, the Jesus that is going to protect them from ever having anything bad happen in their life, going to make sure that everything is comfortable and cozy for them and that they're going to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. That Jesus lets them down and they crash and burn. They don't know what to do because their expectation has been shattered and it really is the result of a failure, I believe, of the churches, of the pulpits to properly teach who God is. And, and while you know, these abstract doctrines of God and his nature and character can seem to us to be aloof and high and mighty and Okay, so how does that come down to, as C.S. Lewis used to call it, the brass tacks? I don't know what that means. I just love that phrase. It's British, and it sounds intelligent. So, you know, when <laughs> the brass tacks. When, when it comes down to the daily working of our life, when we have to actually live out our theology, what does that look like? You know, I think back over the last couple of years, and I don't want to take a lot of time with my, my own personal, our own family story, but right as COVID was taking off at the beginning of 2020, everybody around the world was scared of the, the COVID virus. Our family got hit by a different health crisis called Lyme disease. And four of my children were diagnosed at the beginning of 2020, right as COVID was taking off with Lyme disease. And several of my children almost died from Lyme disease. I had a daughter that was... Um, rushed to Grand Rapids to a children's hospital. Uh, first they thought she had meningitis and literally for five days she's in the hospital and we didn't know if she was going to live. She was four years old. Uh, my little eight-year-old daughter lost the capacity to be able to walk or use her limbs for about 10 months and 
we weren't sure that she was going to make it. My 18-year-old daughter had had Lyme disease undiagnosed for about six years and had debilitated her body to the point where we weren't sure what kind of future she had. And in those moments when you're a dad, the reality crushes in on you because what is your identity as a father? Your identity is you're supposed to be the protector and the provider. And when your ability to protect and provide your family is taken out of your hands in a situation like that, I had no ability to help my own children. I had no capacity to be able to guarantee my wife that they were going to be okay, to guarantee myself or my children that their siblings were going to be okay. And what do you do in that moment? Well, you, you have nothing else that you can do but to completely throw yourself on the mercy of God, to cry out to God for his intervention. And this is exactly what Hezekiah is doing here. He's realizing that, you know, taking all the money that he had at his disposal and even some that wasn't at his disposal and throwing all the money in the world at the problem to try to fix it doesn't always fix the problem. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's completely outside of your capacity. And I, I truly believe that God often brings us to that point of realizing there is nothing more that I can do here to just show us our complete, total, utter helplessness and total dependence on God. We don't like that place. It doesn't feel good to us. But we can respond to it in a couple of different ways. We can get angry about it. We can get frustrated about it. Uh, we can begin to question God's nature and character. We can begin to question his goodness. We can begin to question his love or, or maybe even question his power. And the question is, is anything beyond the power of God? I think intellectually we know better. Uh, Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heaven and the earth by your great power. That's some great power, isn't it? You make the whole heavens and the earth by your power. By your great power and your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. There's nothing that is outside the capacity of God to be able to defend, to be able to rescue. So in chapter 19 here, God sends Isaiah with a message for Sennacherib. And he, he rebukes Sennacherib and basically says, I set you up. I gave you the ability to have this power. I'm using you for my purposes. You seem to have forgotten this or maybe not been aware of it, uh, but you have chosen to mock me. Um, God takes that personal. And so God promises the demise of this king at the end here of uh, verse 28, he says, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And so God promises that he is going to deal with Sennacherib, that Sennacherib is going to be humbled, that Sennacherib is going to experience the, the power of God. He's exalted himself beyond his, his station, as King Nebuchadnezzar once did, and spent seven years crawling around eating grass like an ox. God has the capacity to lower us when need be. 
And so in verse 32, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Get this, one night, one angel, 185,000 of the strongest military soldiers in the world dead. 185,000. One angel. Uh, Again, not the point of my sermon, but I do think that we also should have a biblical theology of angelology. And Hallmark gets it wrong. Angels are not cute and cuddly. They're really scary. Uh, You don't want to mess with them. 185,000 dead one night. And when the people arose early in the morning... Behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. God vindicated Hezekiah, came to the rescue, showed himself strong. I just, we're not going to turn there. I don't want us to, you know, split into a completely different sermon, but I, I just want to mention quickly another scenario that happened 150 years before that, during the time of the prophet Elisha, uh, when Ben-Hadad II had come and a similar situation happened where they had surrounded the city and uh, Elisha and his servant wake up and there's this army around the city and basically Elisha, uh, you know, is, is Elisha's servant says, um, you know, here's the deal, like, you, um, you just give yourself up and they won't destroy the city, otherwise they destroy the city and they kill everybody. Again, that would be a bad way to start your day. Um, and Elisha's servant's very concerned about this, and Elisha's not concerned. Not worried, just, you know, this doesn't say it in the text, but slowly sipping his coffee, calm, subdued. Why is he such? Second Kings 6, I'll just read it here for you, 16 through 17. Um, Elisha answers, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I'm sure the servant is thinking, okay, let's see. Those who are with us, that would be you and me, and then there's all of them. That's what he could see. Right? That was what was visible to him. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is not one angel. This is an entire army of horses and flaming chariots full of angels. Elisha's not worried. He's like, we're good. Nothing's going to happen here that God does not allow. Nothing's going to happen here that God is not in control of. The question here is not, 
is God strong enough to save? The question is not, is God mighty enough to save? That's not in question. We know God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. I think the question that comes to our mind, though, is that we know of scenarios where it doesn't turn out the way that we want it to. We don't get the fairy tale ending. We don't get the, oh, and nothing bad happened and they all lived happily ever after. Sometimes we pray for healing. Sometimes we pray for deliverance. Sometimes we pray to be rescued from the financial collapse or from the calamity that is about us or the drought or whatever the situation may be and we don't get rescued. That's where I think our theology becomes tedious, right? What happens when God doesn't come through in the way that we expect him to? What happens when he doesn't come through in the way that we want him to? In the way that we kind of have been programmed by the children's Bible story books to teach us that this is how it works. You know, you live right, you do good things, and good things happen to you, and God rewards you. Well, there certainly is a sense in which obedience is paramount for us as believers. In fact, in Isaiah 59, 1 through 2, God says, or, you know, Scripture says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear you. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So sin can be a reason why God does not respond to our prayers. We saw that with Samaria. We saw it with the northern kingdom, that they were in rebellion against God. They were living in idolatry. They were living in wickedness, and God wasn't going to protect them. And so God allowed them to experience his justice in being captives. God allowed them to experience difficulty because they had pushed God away. So that is something we need to be mindful of. But there's a wrong doctrine that is often taught within Christian circles that the bad things happen to the bad people and the good things happen to the good people. And so if you're doing good, then only the good things will happen to you. And if bad happens to you, and if you don't get the outcome that you hoped for, there must be something wrong with you. Now, granted, there's something that we sh I mean, obviously, we should inspect our hearts, right? I had a phone call from a guy when I was in the middle of the Lyme disease situation with my children who called me and said, Israel, I just want to ask you, are you and your family in sin? Is this why your children are sick? Is this why they're not getting better? Is there some hidden sin in your life that you are not confessing and that you're not forsaking? Well, honestly, I think it's a question we should ask. Right? I mean, we even see in James, in the admonition of when you're sick, you call the elders, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. I mean, we had that time this morning where we confess our sins. That is something we should do. The psalmist prayed that, search me, O God. Examine my heart, see if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. It's not wrong for us to do that, but in our case, and I'm sure you've experienced this in your life, we couldn't put our finger on anything. There was no cause and effect. We weren't experiencing this because we had sinned in some way or we're living in rebellion. We experienced this because we live in a fallen world. And God's people are not always exempt from illness. We're not always exempt from calamities. God causes the rain to fall on who? The just and the unjust. 
And that's good and bad, right? That means when we need rain, they get some too. And you sit there and think, well, why do the evil get rain? Like, I get why we get it. Why do they get rain? But then when it doesn't rain, it affects all of us, right? So this is part of living in this fallen world. There's another thing, though, that God sometimes allows us to experience these things again. So we just see our complete and utter need for him. And this posture of humility is one that is so healthy for us. It's so good for us. In Isaiah 66, 2, God says, For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. We're told that we're to humble ourselves. This is in uh, 1 Peter 5, 6. To humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. That in due time, he will sustain us. He will lift us up. And so in these moments where we have this just overwhelming tsunami, avalanche of pain, of suffering, of difficulty, and we realize that the doctrine of God is that he is all-powerful, that he is able to do all things. His hand is not too short. His hand is not too weak. God can deliver us from this. What happens when he doesn't? I love the faith of the three Hebrew men when they're being thrown into the fiery furnace that they said, our God is able to deliver us from you, O king, and from this fiery furnace. But if he doesn't, we'll still worship. We're still going to be obedient to God. Job, in the same way, being a righteous man, experienced much suffering. And what was his response? He did not curse God. He did not blame God. He questioned. He didn't get it. He didn't understand. And ultimately, as far as I can tell from the text, he never got the full story. And we, we really don't either. We get some of it. We got more than Job did. But we don't even get the full story. Why does God allow this? I think the thing we have to keep in mind is this juxtaposition of the doctrine of the power of God with the love of God. And if you don't hold them both together at the same time, you'll have an askew view of God. God is all-powerful. He's able to rescue. But when he does not, he has a good reason. Job says, I had heard about you before with my ears, but now I've met you. I've seen you. And what was the response of the most righteous man on earth at that time? That's what the scripture said about Job. He was the most right. God said that of Job, the most righteous man on earth. When he really saw the, the, the holiness of God, he says, I despise myself. I repent myself in dust and ashes. I'll close my mouth. I'll stop talking. I don't know. And there's that realization where there's, there's two of us in this relationship, and one of us is God, and it's not us. <laughs> and... Our response is to say, anything that God has allowed to come into our life, he has allowed for one of three reasons. Number one, the primary reason that God allows any difficulty or pain or suffering in our lives, number one, is to glorify himself. And you say, well, Israel, how do you know that's true? Well, I know that is true because everything that God ever does, ever, he does to glorify himself. So when God is allowing something to happen in your life, the primary reason he is doing it is that it brings glory to him in some way that we don't understand, that we don't get. 
That's number one. The second reason he allows it to come into our life is for our good. Not our good in the moment, necessarily. Like, we don't, it doesn't feel good. I'm not saying it is good. Lyme disease is not good. Cancer is not good. You know, drunk drivers hitting someone and killing them is not good. But in those moments, God redeems it, and he brings about something in our life that glorifies himself and that does a work in us. A work of breaking our own self-will, of conforming us to the image of Christ. God's ultimate goal for you and I is not for us to be happy, although we can find ultimate joy in our relationship with God, but it is for us to become like Christ. And we are not born acting like and thinking like Christ. And so there's a whole lot of flesh in us that has to experience a death blow. And God allows suffering in our life, and we have a big fancy theological term for it. We call it sanctification. That God allows these things to come into our life to break us of our own self-will so that we rely completely and entirely on God. And sometimes we ask God for a miracle, and God says yes. And other times we're like the Apostle Paul, where he prays three times that this thorn in his flesh will be taken from him, and God says no. That is also an answer to prayer. Sometimes God says no. Sometimes he says not yet. Sometimes he says yes. And all of those are for God's glory and our ultimate good. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. This is for your good. Endure this. Embrace it. It's going to be with you for a while. There's not a fast exit. There's not a, not a quick way out of this. There's not, it's not an eject button. You're going to have to endure this. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, it says in Revelation. And then the third reason that God allows these things in our life is that God doesn't waste our suffering, and he plans to use it in our life for the benefit of others. And God does not allow things to happen in our life so that we can help other people, but he doesn't want us to waste that suffering either. I can tell you a whole bunch of stories, but even just how many people have written our family and that we've gotten in communication with over the last few years related to Lyme disease that I would have never had a context to be able to, uh, to talk with them. And in fact, just quickly, I'll share this. I was at uh, a conference down in Mobile, Alabama, and as I was walking, uh, the conference was over, I was walking back to my hotel, which was connected to the conference center, and I saw a security guard in a wheelchair and he had this like souped up wheelchair. I mean, it was pretty fancy. And I'd never paid attention to wheelchairs in my life because I had never really needed one, never been around one. But when my daughter couldn't walk for eight months, I, we had to get a wheelchair for her. And all of a sudden, I got familiar with wheelchairs, pushing it around. And, and I just felt drawn to go over and talk to this guy. And I said, hey, I know this is a little presumptive. And I, I don't, you know, if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But can I ask you some questions about your wheelchair? Tell, tell me about the chair and where, where'd you get it and what's, you know, what's it like and what can you do with it? And I said, man, you know, again, I don't mean to pry. It's your personal story, but could you tell me how you got here? And he said, man, I got shot. I was, I was out in my yard. Somebody drove by and just shot me. Bullet lodged in my spine. I'm paralyzed from the waist down. As soon as uh, my wife found out I was going to be a paraplegic, she left me. Said she didn't want to be married to me anymore because I wasn't a real man. And she took my children with me and basically fought me in the courts to keep me from seeing my children. He said, my whole life fell apart. 
Then I realized why I was there to talk to him, right? What was this Lyme disease thing and this little experience with his wheelchair that gave me the, I don't know, the interest, a connection to go talk to him. I wouldn't have had that had it not been. And so I asked him, I said, well, where is God in all of this from your viewpoint? He said, well, that's an interesting question. He said, my dad was a preacher. He said, but where God is, I don't know. But he said, I'll tell you what. He said, I believe in God, but I don't want to have anything to do with him. The God that would let this happen to me is not a good God. I don't want to serve him. I don't want to have anything to do with a God like this. And I got to talk with him. And I got to share the gospel with him. And I got to pray with him. And as I started to walk away after our conversation, lengthy conversation, he just said, hey, can can you stop just a minute? He said, I just want to tell you, he said, you have no idea how timely this was that you came over here and talked to me about God today. You have no idea. This was not an accident. And he said, it's stuff like this that keeps happening in my life that I keep going, okay, so why is it that God keeps doing things like this and sending people like you to talk to me? He said, again, the timing, you, you don't know. So, did God allow Lyme disease to come into my family so that I could have a conversation with a guy in a wheelchair and talk to him about Jesus? Well, no. God's not going to do that so I can have an opportunity to witness. But God doesn't waste anything. God does not waste our suffering, and we shouldn't waste it either. God will redeem it for our good, the work it does within us, but for the good of other people too. And we will find we have opportunities to share with people to minister to people because of the pain that we've experienced, the life experience that we've had. We will have connection points with other people. And it's our choice whether we want to be used in that way by the Holy Spirit to be an agent of grace in someone else's life. But God's willing to do that. He wants to do that. He, he desires to do that, to allow us to share our experience in suffering with other people. Let's pray. Let's look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just confess to you that we're ignorant, that we don't know, we don't understand, that we are weak. We're just all the things that you aren't. Lord, you're all powerful, you're all knowing. And Lord, we do acknowledge that even though we don't like these things that happen to us, these difficulties, we acknowledge that they are for your glory, our good and good of others. And so, we ask you to teach us to submit ourselves to you and to humble ourselves before you that in due time you would raise us up, that we would be able to see the strength of your hand. We acknowledge your hand is not too short to save. There's nothing in you that is incapable of rescuing us from the suffering. But God, if you want us to go through it, we just pray, Lord, that you give us courage and you give us patience and endurance and that you do a work in us that would conform us to the image of Christ and make us more like Jesus. This is what we really want. And so we love you. Thank you for who you are and the, the things that you, will, that you send into our life and the things that you ordain for our growth and our sanctification. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.